for our next session, we have Mr. Benjamin Campbell, who's going to be presenting. Uh, this is the second time uh, Ben has presented in this context, and uh, we enjoy hearing the things that he's been thinking about and reflecting on in his study and in his ministry. Ben is the pastor of Arbor Grove Free Will Baptist in Hoxie, Arkansas. He's a two-time graduate of this institution, uh, including uh, being a recipient of his master's degree here. He's also currently pursuing a Master of Divinity from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Prior to pastoring, he served in youth ministry for six years, and he is married to Kaylee, and they have two sons, Beckett and Haddon Charles, and Beckett's over there with us today. I think probably our youngest attendee this year, and we're glad that he's here, and we're very glad to have Ben with us. And I hope you'll be listening carefully to his presentation and considering questions you may have as he presents on Reformed Arminianism and Real Assurance, an analysis of John 6.37 and Assurance of Salvation. Certainly a meaningful subject. Come right along, Ben. Good morning. Thanks to the commission for the opportunity. I'm uh, thrilled to be here. So I am going to be speaking and reading my paper on uh, the assurance of salvation. I, I had originally had planned to uh, speak on more than one verse from the Gospel of John, but just found it to be quite more lengthy than I had imagined. So we stuck with uh, John 6.37 and assurance of salvation. Uh, the assurance of salvation believers possess really only takes place through a gospel-centered, Christ-focused, spirit-empowered theology of salvation. In his work, All of Grace, Charles Haddon Spurgeon remarks that if we are found faithful, it will be because God is faithful. On the faithfulness of our covenant God, the whole burden of our salvation must rest. Insofar as many people conjure doubts in their life, assurance of salvation really is a topic every Christian should affirm and enjoy throughout their lifetime. Because assurance of salvation rests on the faithful God of the Bible. But the delinquency arises, however, when different theological systems fight to the front of the line for the doctrine's authenticity and truthfulness. Reformed Arminianism is often caricatured as Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism, which is an altogether untrue description of the system of thought. In an article titled, How Romans 8 Made Me a Calvinist, the author parodies this subject, stating that Reformed Arminianism cannot guarantee salvation because of the belief in the possibility of apostasy. And he suggests this quote, he says, that if people can fall out of the chain at any point, then we can never know that all things will work together for the good of the called. So insofar as the author states, it is clear that he believes that the only guarantee for salvation is through that of divine determinism or double predestination. Essentially, then, if, if one believes in the possibility of apostasy, then there really is no authentic guarantee for assurance and security in salvation. Often, non-Arminians will portray Arminianism of any form as a synergistic form of salvation, which lessens the sovereignty of God and then heightens the responsibility of man. As one Calvinist author records, the issues at the heart of the Calvinist-Arminian controversy are intimately related to the gospel. The controversy deals with the nature of God's sovereignty and human free will, the impact of sin upon human beings, the meaning of the atonement, 
the definition and power of God's grace, the possibility of assurance, and much more. So according to Calvinist theologians and thinkers, Arminianism is a gospel issue, which is simply not the case, especially when we are dealing with Reformed Arminianism. Reformed Arminianism, like other theological systems, can guarantee salvation, even while in disagreement with other theological systems. Reformed Arminianism does not begin with a Pelagian Pelagian view of salvation. Instead, it begins and ends with Jesus Christ and His satisfactory death for His elect on Calvary's cross. Perhaps the reason many Calvinists often present Arminianism as an illogical system is because they do not truly understand the ins and outs of Arminianism entirely. Though a thorough critique of every comparison cannot ensue in this paper, uh, the topic of assurance will be at the forefront of the thesis, which will, will be a work of careful navigation through the Reformed Arminian doctrine of assurance of salvation. The ultimate question, then, is whether Reformed Arminianism can guarantee its advocates salvation or not. Thus, the aim of this paper is to demonstrate the basis for assurance through one of John's most controversial passages, and then to affirm real assurance of salvation within the Reformed Arminian tradition. So let's define and establish assurance then. Biblical assurance is enriching for believers only when it is grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Only is it the active and passive obedience of Jesus Christ which saves a person, therefore... It is also only this work of Christ that secures a person. According to James Hamilton, the beloved apostle of the Lord Jesus, records an account of the ministry of Jesus to both unbelievers so they will start believing and to believers so they will continue believing. The apostle's chief aim in this account is to present the Son of God as the one who is God from eternity past, God in flesh, and the one who would take away the sins of the world as our sacrificial lamb. In one way or another, John is overstating his case uh, by recording many of the miracles Jesus performed for those around him. And along this sequence, there are a select few passages of contention between Calvinists and Arminians regarding assurance of salvation. This paper will only analyze one of those verses, and that is John 6:37. It is in this passage where Jesus offers a glimpse of gospel hope amid intellectual confusion so to say, uh, after performing signs and wonders of which his onlookers are enthralled. Now, John 6 is a wonderfully appealing chapter to believers in Jesus Christ because of its nature and verbiage towards security and assurance. Because John aims for his readers to convince themselves of who Jesus is so they will have life in his name, It is imperative that one adheres to the purpose of John's writing as the interpretive process ensues because the ground of Christian assurance is the object of Christian faith. The solid rock of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross is the only true resting place of one's eternity. Thus, biblical assurance is grounded only on Christ's atoning work in the place of sinners on Calvary's cross. The Apostle John grounds his very gospel account in this verity that Jesus Christ in his finished work can save and secure God's chosen people. Yet when a controversial passage like John 6.37 is presented, one can often become perplexed because of the mixed signals they might sense theologically. 
after Jesus fed the multitudes and walked on water, he gives his audience the knowledge which can save their souls, but only if they will hear it. And by hearing, he doesn't simply mean the physical sense of hearing through our ears of what is spoken to us, but also in the sense of believing and even hearing through the total personality of mind, heart, and will. Because salvation affects the mind, heart, and will, it is much more than mere obligation or duty. It is the transformation of one's mind, heart, and will which occurs in and through the finished work of Christ. Jesus is abundantly clear in John 6 that many who were following him were those who had seen him and yet do not believe. So there were many following Jesus from city to city because of these signs and wonders which he'd performed. Perhaps many followed him because he fed them the day before this encounter. Either way, it is evident their focus is physical, not spiritual. Thus what is presented are the qualifications for Jesus' statement in verse 37 of John 6, which reads, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Because of the nature of this situation, Jesus divinely stated that salvation will only be given to those who come to him by way of being sent by the Father. More poignantly, Jesus is conveying that those listen, to those listening that simply following him for physical nourishment was not going anywhere spiritually for them. Thus, Jesus places some qualifications, or we might say conditions, on what it means to come to him. In order to come to Jesus, you must be sent by the Father above. By reference of John 6.44, it is apparent that only those whom God draws to himself will come to Christ. It is also correct that those whom the Father draws to himself will come to Christ in faith for salvation. The issue then becomes forefront by defining what it means to be drawn and what it means to come into a union with Jesus. Many Calvinist thinkers would proffer that this drawing only can occur by an unconditional act of election. However, this seems not to be the case. Reformed Arminians affirm that it takes a work of God to break through, convince them of their sins, convince them that Jesus can save them, convince them that Jesus is the only way, and then lead them to Christ. This drawing of man to Christ by God is done in sequence with the total personality. In other words, God does not do away with one's personhood while dealing with them salvifically. It is consistent for one to believe God diminishes sorry, it is inconsistent for one to believe God diminishes an individual's personhood in salvation, yet created us with a capacity for making decisions based on thoughts and feelings in life. Similarly, Arminius claims that when God acts either through his creatures with them or in them, he does not take away the peculiar mode of acting or of suffering which he has divinely placed within them. Arminius affirms what all Christians, past and present, believe, which is that man has a will given by God by which he can act freely. So approaching assurance through the total personality is imperative to a correct view of how believers can be assured they are saved because humanity is not saved without genuine decision-making given to us by a God who has created us in His image and likeness. 
as God draws people to Himself, or to Christ, excuse me, they must think, feel, and act upon this drawing in order to come to Jesus. This act of coming to Christ is the obvious recognizable contention. Fourlines believes it is those who come to Christ that are drawn by the Father. On the other hand, others will argue that those who are truly saved will continue in that condition, for Jesus will not let them fall away. Thus, there is contention between how God draws people and how people respond. Therefore, a more thorough look into verse 37 of John 6 is necessary. The ones whom the Father gives Jesus are the ones who respond to the Father's drawing with mind, heart, and will. All whom the Father gives to Jesus have been drawn by Him. Thus, all who come to Jesus have responded to this drawing by the Father. Even Calvinist scholars affirm this. There's a quote from some. Only it is not the simply willing, but the actually coming, whom He will not cast out. For the word here employed usually denotes arrival as distinguished from the ordinary word, which rather expresses the act of coming. So even non-Arminian scholars affirm that those coming to Christ are those who arrive to Christ by faith. So it is the ones who are in union with Christ that have come to Him. Perhaps the more contentious element to this verse is really in the latter portion, where Jesus says, "...in the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out." According to one commentator, those whom the Father has given are eternally secure in Christ. The author here grounds his statement in John 5, 28 and 29, which conveys that only those in Christ will be raised from death death to life on the last day. I think this statement has two errors which perpetuate inconsistent thinking in this doctrine of assurance. The first error is that he assumes a conditional election followed by an unconditional perseverance. So as a foundation for assurance, the author asserts that it is one's belief in Christ that articulates whether the Father has given them to Jesus. And he affirms this uh, later on in his commentary by his own proposed question. He says, when we look at Jesus, do we believe in Him or not? That question imposes an election to salvation Condition on one's own believing in Jesus, yet that view is inconsistent with the aforementioned beliefs on eternal security. There is no feasible way to make salvation work together by being conditional to come into and unconditional to stay in. If salvation is conditional in the beginning, it must be conditional through the end. Likewise, Calvin infers Christ has said, and he's um, like rhetorically quoting Christ here, People whom the Father has chosen, He regenerates and gives to me, so that they may obey the gospel. In Calvin's interpretation, there is simply, of course, a predestinarian nature to the drawing by God and the coming to Jesus. On the cause and effect sequence, that makes perfect sense. However, in Calvin's lackadaisical paraphrase, he communicates something which Jesus does not convey, In order to be in his flock, Jesus said you must believe in who he is. After all, John affirms this in writing, as I mentioned before, that those reading this account would believe on the name of the Son of God and have life in his name, per John 20, 31. So a second inconsistency in in the commentator's argument is the meaning of John 5, 28 and 29 that has essentially nothing to do with the doctrine of Christian assurance. Now we can't 
totally rule that out with the reference to verses in John 5. But it is important to note that Jesus was specifically referencing his equality with God in order that he might, and this is a quote from 27, execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now the commentator aims to reference back in chapter 5 that those in Christ will wake up on judgment day innocent, yet fails to see the contextual underpinnings underpinnings of this passage altogether. Instead, the more natural interpretation of the passage seems to fit better contextually when one takes the passage and reads it for what is worth. Instead of aiming to proof text unconditional security, any student of the Bible must aim to realize that we have come to Christ because we have been drawn by God and have responded in faith and belief. Therefore, we have assurance that we are saved. If we come to Christ by faith and belief, we are kept by Christ through faith and belief. This assurance is not based on the faith we possess, but only the person and work of Jesus Christ and His death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead. It seems that even Calvinists believe in this grace that precedes regeneration. Otherwise, no one is drawn, which means one is only elected to salvation unconditionally. Yet this is inconsistent with a prevenient grace motif. Kostenberger notes that God does have a prevenient work, and thus Jesus is willfully obligated to keep them by His Word and the Father's will. However, even those who are preveniently drawn must have, and this is a quote from Kostenberger, a positive human response. In other words... Those who come to Christ have come by their willful response to God's drawing and will be kept as they continually believe in the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ for their sin debt. Continual belief, then, is only made manifest in the person's willful action of faith and belief. Thus, if one discontinues in faith and believing, salvation is no longer a reality for them. Four lines correctly, correctly asserts we can be in danger of losing our salvation. However, we have lost it only when the union is broken and we have no longer the death and resurrection of Christ. And in other passages, John affirms that God will take away all those who are in Christ who do not bear fruit. So when Jesus claims that he will not cast out those who come to him by the drawing of the Father, he truly means it. Because Jesus cannot cast out those the Father gives him, there is verity in the union one shares with him. To be in union with Christ, four lines proffers, is to be saved. Christ keeps those of whom he is given by the Father. He is obligated by his own union with the Father to do the will of him who sent him. Therefore, the will of Jesus Christ is ultimately bound by his eternal relation of origin to keep those whom God the Father gives him by his drawing. The will of Jesus Christ is the will of God the Father, which then would demand one to assume that those in Christ must be eternally secure as Calvinist proponents would convey. On the contrary... Jesus carrying out the will of the Father does not determine either the belief or the unbelief of believers in union with Him. Both belief and unbelief are carried out by the one being drawn and saved. Now, there is no doubt that
that Jesus will accomplish the will of the Father because He is one with the Father. But if the Father's will is only predicated through man's response, then when men choose to disbelieve, it is not contrary to the Father's will because He has created human beings with wills of their own. God loses no sovereignty in the disobedience and disbelief of human beings. Human beings don't have a problem leaving Jesus. Human beings have a problem staying with Jesus. If human wills are bent towards sin, which they are, then the problem is not with Jesus Christ, but with human beings. In other words, if in Jesus Christ, man is secure. Jesus Christ keeps those whom the Father gives because this is the Father's will. John tells us in John 3 that none should perish but have everlasting life. So the will of God the Father is that all He gives to Jesus, He will not cast out. That Jesus is obligated to keep the Father's will does not require, however, His keeping to affect the personhood of the believer. In other words, though Jesus will not cast out anyone who comes to Him, there's still a possibility of someone fostering unbelief in their own heart. The unbelief in the life of a human being is never caused by the God of the Bible, but is instead a product of the fall of man. Thus, the balance between Christ's keeping and man's faith is revealed. Carson notes this, John's gospel directs us to Jesus and assures us that eternal life is ours because it has been secured by him in his death. Key sentence in that last quote, we appropriate it by faith. Yet again, another inconsistency is propagated from Calvinism's theology of assurance. If we appropriate salvation by faith, then our assurance is appropriated by faith as well. Carson's assessment of assurance saying it is appropriated by faith and that faith is the means of salvation both assume a condition for both salvation and assurance. Whether or not Carson presents it this way. While Carson communicates in conditional assurance in one resource, he also promulgates another aspect when he writes, Jesus' confidence in the success of his mission is frankly predestinarian. In his commentary on John, Carson explains that the Father's redemptive processes cannot be frustrated by potentiality. But if salvation and assurance is conditioned or appropriated by faith, as Carson would say, then there must be some sense of appropriation. All that the Father gives to Christ are given to Him because they are drawn by God and they responded in such a way that unites these drawn persons to Christ through faith and belief. Not because of a predestinarian nature in the redemptive processes of God that is unknown to anyone other than God himself. Furthermore, Carson digs a deeper hole by parsing the word ekbalo, which is cast out, and which nearly always implies casting out something that is already in. He asserts, however, that I will never drive away means... I will certain, certainly keep in, which confirms speaking out of both sides of his mouth. In other words, there's, there's no happy medium between a predestinarian determinism and a condition of faith for salvation other than prevenient grace that draws men to Christ by the power of God and a salvation that is conditioned upon the faith of this drawn individual through mind, heart, and will. So let's define assurance through Reformed Arminianism. There's obviously much confusion. 
between these theological systems. So a definition of assurance from the Reformed Arminian perspective is necessary to move forward in this interpretation of John 6.37. If men like Carson, Calvin, and others have issues regulating the process between regeneration, assurance, and security, then there might just be a more logically consistent perspective from which one will see assurance. So as a definition from a Reformed Armenian perspective, I would argue that biblical assurance is the confidence and hope in the atoning work of Christ for those who believe in Him for salvation. And what I'll do is, is take those in turn to show how Reformed Arminianism can guarantee uh, salvation to its subscribers. Let's take the first, and that is confidence and hope. Insofar as faith is the appropriating element for salvation, the manner in which faith appropriates salvation is through a trust and confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The faith of a human being is not conjured up within them by their own volition and willful intention, but is graciously given by God to those offered the gospel by grace before regeneration. As mentioned before, even non-Armenians believe in this idea of pre-regenerating grace. Millard Erickson proffers the same line of thinking when he states, No one is able to will to be saved, to come to God, to believe without special enablements. God sincerely offers salvation to all, but all of us are so settled in our sins that we will not respond unless assisted to do so. Erickson's comments intentionally deal with the Arminian understanding of salvation, Yet they essentially prove what Reformed Arminians propose altogether, that God's workings with man before regeneration are none other than that of His prevenient grace. This confidence and hope possessed by believing persons is often characterized in the Bible as faith. Faith, according to the writer of Hebrews, is assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. In ultimate ways, the author of Hebrews is revealing this true nature of faith. And I would argue that this is confidence and hope. Faith is the means through which persons are saved. And Erickson says, faith is at the very heart of the gospel, for it is the vehicle by which we are enabled to receive the grace of God. Now notice how the, the aspect of faith for salvation is the present and the future. There is a present confidence in the reality of one's justification through the person and work of Christ. Yet there is also a forward-looking element to faith in that there is a future reality promised to those who persevere in faith. However, the only way one possesses this future reality of the life to come is by faith in Christ to endure this life until the hereafter. As Fourlines notes, we are saved by faith and kept by faith. So for the doctrine of assurance, an important distinction must be made between saving faith and other forms of faith. Some uh, scholars have noted of historical faith, which means the person might understand the claims of Scripture. Or a temporary faith, which might, uh, which might uh, believe in the truths that Scripture claims for a short time. While others simply call this common faith. Jonathan Edwards even probes these same thoughts. He says, because the same faith is often spoken of as that which first brings men into a state of salvation, and not merely as that which Christians attain to afterwards, after they have performed the condition of salvation. In other words, faith is the condition for how one comes into a state of grace. 
Therefore, faith is required is the required condition of the believer's union with Jesus because, because it is a condition required in the object to be saved, and it is in fact a condition before it is the means for obtaining salvation. So it is this saving faith that gives us confidence and hope that we are saved in the here and now and are being saved for the life to come. Only can faith produce confidence and hope for the believer in Jesus Christ because faith is the confidence and hope in the object of salvation, Jesus Christ. Yet the only appropriating element for salvation is saving faith. And while faith is the appropriator for salvation, it is not the ground. The ground of our salvation is Jesus Christ and his finished work. The ground and foundation of all that believers experience in salvation is only found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is the atoning work of Jesus Christ that grounds the mercy and judgment of God in the salvation of his people. Pelican proffers a similar thought. If there were to be salvation, it was necessary that God should provide it. So the only possible way for salvation to occur for humanity was by the God of heaven willingly giving himself to save humankind. Piper agrees, and he asserts, When you hear or read what God has done for sinners in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, this appears to your heart as a great and glorious thing in and of itself, even before you are saved and you're sure that you're saved by it. So salvation is non-existent without the atoning death of Jesus Christ in the place of wretched sinners. The redemptive purposes of God all culminate in this event in time when God the Son left the principalities of heaven to become human and live the life humanity could not live and die for them in their place to pay their sin debt. Oh, how comforting it is to rest in the arms of our substitute and satisfactory Lamb, Jesus Christ the righteous. His bloody death and bodily resurrection are the only grounds for, for assurance of salvation for sinful human beings. None other can save but Him. Therefore, there is no assurance of salvation unless it is grounded and founded in Jesus Christ by faith in His atoning death on the cross and resurrection for humanity. Now, while assurance is grounded in the atoning death and resurrection of Christ, the element of belief in His atoning work is necessary for a, con a continual assurance throughout one's life. Piper presents two warrants of assurance. He says there is an objective warrant and a subjective warrant. The objective warrant is the finished work of Christ on the cross we just covered. The subjective warrant is our faith expressed in sanctification. Even as Piper agrees, belief in Jesus Christ and his atoning work is the continual element of belief in this verity. Belief in Jesus has nothing to do with necessarily a predestinarian element to salvation, but the willful confidence and hope from a person responding to the drawing call of God. Jesus tells those following him around throughout his ministry that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. In John 6.40, two words present this idea that salvation is conditioned on the faith and belief of the individual drawn by God to Christ. The word behold implies a theoretical analysis or a contemplation of Jesus. To behold Jesus is to carefully consider who he is and his claims to be God in flesh. 
directly related to faith is the element of belief in Jesus Christ. So we know this because of John's use of the word believe, which is pastuon, which contains the same root for faith in the New Testament. So both beholding and believing in the person of Jesus Christ is the way one comes to be regenerated by Christ's atoning work on the cross. We behold Christ by affirming that He is who He said He was, and we believe that His life, death, and resurrection is the only means through which we can become righteous before a holy and just God. Any other, quote, belief nullifies the atoning death and resurrection of Christ and basically makes it worthless. So John's purpose in writing his gospel account and Jesus' purpose in John 6 is to persuade those following him to see him for who he truly is and believe on his name for salvation. That's that last element. Salvation of the one who beholds and believes in Jesus Christ is both a present and a future reality. While the gospel of Jesus Christ is not merely transactional, it does hold an element of instantaneous redemption. The justification of a, a, a believer experiences through faith and belief, or one might say beholding and believing in Jesus Christ, is immediate. Also, however, salvation is a continual persevering work throughout the believer's life in Jesus Christ. While, John, while Jesus in John 6.37 does guarantee that he will not cast out anyone who comes to him by faith and belief, there is no concrete evidence supporting the claim of eternal security by merely acting in faith toward Christ. Faith is a continual condition for salvation and a necessary continual element of assurance. As mentioned earlier, the issue is not with Jesus. The issue is with human beings who possess wills bent towards sin and self-sufficiency. Jesus will keep those who the Father gives him. He will not cast them out, nor will he drive them away. He cannot do otherwise. Human beings, however, can do otherwise. Thus, the keeping element of salvation is beholding and believing in Jesus. It is saving faith in his atoning sacrificial death and his resurrection. The way believers can have assurance of their salvation is by their continual close union and intimacy with Jesus Christ, the all-sovereign keeping Savior. True faith manifests itself in outward tangible ways. In other words, the New Testament draws a connection between faithfulness and the enjoyment of assurance. True believers demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, and this fruit is observable and measurable. The fundamental ways in which assurance is first possessed is by a close union with Jesus Christ. And since the object of our faith is Jesus Christ alone, it is only logical. It only logically concludes the only way one can be assured they are saved is by being in union with him through continual faith and belief. Sam Storms notes, although we can have full assurance of eternal life the moment we trust in Christ, our confidence grows and intensifies in direct proportion to our cognitive grasp of the broad expanse of what God has revealed. In other words, as we grow in Christ, we grow in assurance. The second way in which assurance is possessed is through the acting out of one's saving faith. True continual assurance comes through the expression of sanctified actions and intentions from the believers in Jesus Christ. 
being in intimate union with Jesus Christ through faith and belief, and living as if Jesus is Lord over your thoughts, intents, and actions, gives believers the assurance to continue living for him until the next life is ushered in. So if the promise in John 6.37 from Jesus is true, then we must believe it until death. When doubts and fear and skepticism enter in, the possibility of unbelief or lacking faith become realities and could even cause men to walk away from the Lord completely. For this reason, Jesus implores us to believe in Him because He will keep us as we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. The God-ordained role of human beings in salvation is to do just this. It's to work out our own salvation. Thomas Hellas declares, This then is the decree of God, as he has declared in his word to Adam. Obey and live, disobey and die. Man has nothing to contribute to his regeneration, for he comes into it by faith and belief in the Son of God. Man has no role to play in his saving other than faith and belief in the Son of God. Therefore, we must rejoice in the gracious kindness of Almighty God, who has promised in His Word that as we respond to His drawing us to Jesus Christ through faith and belief, He will keep us as we hold on tightly to His Son, the chief justice of our souls. Nothing in this earthly life will be as assuring to mankind as the eternally good, eternally sovereign, all-sufficient person and work of Jesus Christ for the salvation of God's elect. Assurance will only be real to the believer when it is rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who left his heavenly principality to live, die, and rise again in the place of sinful humanity for their redemption and reconciliation to God. In a sermon, in, uh, uh, in, in Spurgeon's sermons, he probes his audience so clearly. He says, To put together all I have said, you must quit every other hope. You must take Jesus to be your sole confidence. And then you must be obedient to his command and take him to be your master and Lord. Biblical assurance is grounded in this verity that all other ground is sinking sand. And Christ is truly your only solid rock on which you stand. Thank you. That's too long. <laughs> yeah, that's. <laughs> I know it. <laughs> yeah. I'll kick this off here. So it seems like one of the. You mentioned this early in the paper. We, we despite our disagreements with our Calvinist brothers, we, we acknowledge them to be brothers and we want to have fair representations both of their perspective and we would like them to reciprocate that. And it seems like one of the challenges that we always have is there's this temptation toward sort of intellectual idolatry where we kind of value and privilege our, our systems, mm -hmm. our ways of explaining what we find in Scripture over what those systems are actually describing. So for example, on page number... 47 at the top, and again, you have so many sentences and paragraphs where you really 
drive home this point that there is no assurance of salvation unless it is grounded and founded in Jesus Christ. And so we're very Christocentric in many places. And yet, and, and I'm, I know I've just phrased this like this before, there's several places where you talk about Reformed Arminianism can guarantee or it can provide. And I wonder if even we're going to have to refrain that refrain from that way of speaking about it because we're acting like the system provides that. Whereas we might better it might be better to be more consistent in saying Christ provides this and reformed Arminian account of that or description of that is what is what we're really saying or providing a defense of because again they're going to use a lot of the same terminology though in different yeah. shades of meaning but we're all going to come back to it's Christ, it's Christ, but our, our perspectives are going to give a different account of how Christ delivers that and what we're, a, what we're supposed to do in response. So does that make sense? Is that a fair suggestion, you think? Sure, yeah. Uh, I think mainly the reason I use the word guarantee is from that, that initial article. That I, that I mentioned from the Gospel Coalition um, at the beginning of the paper where, uh, yeah, he, he, I would encourage everybody to go read that article because he actually mentions Dr. Dr. Piccarelli and Dr. Pinson and, and Fourlines in this article and claims to be a former Reformed Arminian and then basically says as he read Romans 8, he figured out that Arminianism can't guarantee salvation. Yeah. So that was the reason. So I, I tried to... And maybe, maybe I should have uh, done better, but I tried to do a good job of saying guarantee in the beginning, but then pointing to that, that this assurance is only grounded in Christ yeah. and, his, and His work, if that makes sense. So. Yeah. Dr. Pick. Ben, thanks for your paper. I appreciate it. I, I, first of all, a, a comment on the bottom of 47. I really like the sentence you wrote there. Faith is a continual condition for salvation and a necessary <coughs> continual element of assurance. I, I, I think that's a good insight there. I want to ask you a question about a statement on verse 41. <clears throat> oh, I guess it's the second paragraph in the bottom and the very end of the paragraph. This drawing uh, a man to Christ by God, oh no, that's not the one no more. It's the it's the previous paragraph okay. the last sentence. <clears throat> It is also correct that those whom the Father draws to himself will come to Christ for faith. Now, I, I may be wrong, and you can correct me if I am, but I interpret that to mean that you regard the drawing in this verse as always effective. Uh, in other words, only those whom he draws will come. So my question would be then, what does God do in the way of prevenient grace for those who don't come. Yeah, I, I read that and realized I should have worded it differently. <laughs> oh, okay. uh, which uh, I, I do agree with four lines who says that, that the drawing is drawing to Christ for response. Um, where he says that the drawing is not um, necessarily an, an, uh, an unconditional act of election, but it, it is more of a drawing to, um, to that, that, that response to faith or rejection. Um, no, I would affirm a, and, um, a, you know, an influence and response model, as we would say, where the drawing is more of the, the, the influencing or the wooing 
to that willful choice, um, like we would say. Um, yeah, I read that and thought, doggone it, I should have reworded that. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, I think there, there is an element, I would, I would say, where, um, you know, I, I would say that if, if man is truly uh, affected by this grace and is, is uh, you know, willingly open to the, the, the wooing of the Holy Spirit and the drawing of God to Christ, that he would respond in such a way. If he truly understands who Christ is and what he has done, for him, that there would be um, a, a a salvation. Would he respond positively? Um, but no, I would not say that it is an unconditional thing. Where if he is drawn, then he is saved. So, does that does that answer? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, once again, um, it may be that many Calvinists who would read this might might ask you, and I would suggest that as you continue along these lines further in the future, give thought to the difference between an assurance of final salvation and assurance of present salvation. That, that yes. would be an yep. area worth, worth uh, adding into this. That, yeah, that's a, I appreciate that. That's a good uh, piece of advice. Yes, sir. I, I think John 6 is, is a tough passage. Um, I'll take a step back from it, and it looks to me like John 6, John 10, and mm-hmm. the 1st John. So if I've written these things to you so that you might know that you have eternal life. And so John is wanting us to have assurance. Yeah. Right? Um, sometimes I, when I'm preaching and teaching at my church, I ask kind of a trick question. Do we, Arminians, believe in the security of the believer. And I say, no. We believe in the double security of the believer because Jesus says, no one can snatch you out of my hands mm-hmm. and no one can snatch you out of my Father's hands. So saying in Colossians chapter 3 where Paul says, your lives are hidden with Christ in God. Yes. This double security. But the, the key is of the believer. Right. Absolute assurance and security of the one who is believing. And even in John chapter 6, the verbs of which we are the subject are present tense. And you, you know, you, you mentioned that a number of times, this continual thing, but in the, in the grammar of the text, the one who is looking, the one who is believing. And even in John 5, 1 John 5.13, it's, it's the same thing. Uh, this present tense verbs of having, believing, and so forth. Uh, so, I, I think, yeah, absolutely. As long as we continue to believe, we continue to be assured of our salvation. Yeah, I think. But I don't want to withdraw the idea of assurance there. You know, uh, that, that I think that John really is, is intending uh, to have that effect on us as we read these texts. Yeah. and you also don't want to uh, minimize the power of Christ's keeping as well. As we are in Him, He keeps us. He does complete that which He begins, as Philippians tells us. And we can't, again, I think there is a, a good balance in Reformed Arminianism with a, a conditional perseverance and wrestling with Philippians 1.6. Um, you know, these, these passages in John. John 10 was going to be my other, was going to be my other passage to look at where He says that no one can snatch me out of, no one can snatch you out of my Father's hand. And, uh, 
but but I think I think you're exactly right. Um, as we are in Christ, we are kept. Arminius would say the same thing that that we are uh, elect because we are in Christ, and I think that's exactly right. That's good. Other questions? Yeah. So I've heard the argument from Calvinists a question that we how could we lose our salvation? Uh, would it be a better way to articulate it from an Arminian point of view to say that we can forfeit or give it up? Would you say from from what I've understood? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I don't. I mean, probably everybody in here doesn't like the. The, the terminology of losing it. But uh, I would say it's forfeiture, or, or maybe a better term is, is a type of willful rejection. Um, whereas if, as, as, as Mr. Fourlines would say, as if we are total people who think with our minds, feel with our hearts, act with our wills, then you know, our, our personhood is not diminished as we come into a state of grace, and our personhood is not diminished as we stay in a state of grace. So at times... We, you know, all of us have experienced these these times in our lives where, I mean, we all do this, where we say, is this really true? We've all done this. And, and if we're not careful, we can, you know, listen to culture, listen to, you know, different worldviews, and we could become convinced and, and then willfully reject uh, Christ and his lordship. I, I don't want to say too much because I don't want to try to... Um, be too specific toward one specific person. I think uh, you know that issue is between them and the Lord, necessarily. Like as as Reformed Armenians, we're not over here like well, you're you're apostate. You're, you know we don't want to do that. But um, but sometimes the evidence is clear. I think the language of looking, the one who looks. Mm-hmm. Is looking and is believing. I think I think that's really important in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. It goes back to John three. Yeah. You know the image of being raised up and looking, and especially in the book of Hebrews. Well, Hebrews and Revelation. Mm-hmm. Uh, can't. This is another kind of trick question. Does he? Does the book of Hebrews teach that you can lose your salvation? No, because no one is saved until they get home. And therefore, the exhortation of the book of Hebrews is always, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us right. keep our eyes on Jesus. Yes. And this continual keeping our eyes upon him is the thing that is going to finally bring us home. Yeah. Yeah, I, no, I, I actually just preached through Hebrews earlier this year. And uh, it's interesting how, how Hebrews 11 opens up, that, that we fix our eyes right. on Jesus yeah. um, as, and as we endure this life. And it's interesting, too, that after I, I noticed this as I, I studied through it, there, there's five warning passages, and after each warning passages, there's actually uh, some sort of exhortation to continue and to persevere. Right. So it's not just as if Hebrews is this big, long dialogue and discourse of, well, you have five options, five t- times of falling away here, falling away. But instead what it is is there is this possibility, but... Watch yourself. Keep guard over your soul. Turn to Christ. Run to Him because He is the author and the perfecter of your faith. And I think that's, again, deeply and rooted and consistent with Reformed Arminian tradition, which, which is, focuses on the sovereignty of God and salvation, yet the, the responsibility of man to continue in faith as a condition. I would just observe also, and I, I'd be curious... Um, 
on this question, I, I find myself as a pastor dealing a lot more with people wanting assurance about other people's salvation huh. yeah. than their own. Yeah. They're concerned about the, yeah. the well-being of their children, their grandchildren, as, and that, that strikes me as a different type of theological and pastoral sure. problem that, I mean, our time has eluded us. So you've got a five-minute break here. Let's thank Mr. Campbell.